0: The Character of Love, that's the name of the sermon title. I thought I'd start off with an illustration to set the tone, set the set the stage for the preaching of God's word out of 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 today. The date was March 4th, 1861. Abraham Lincoln will be inaugurated as the 16th president of the United States of America. A little over a month later, On April 12th, 1861, the United States of America will be at civil war. North was fighting south. The nation was on the brink of tearing into two. The Union was was being threatened to be dissolved. And the war was going badly for the North. The War Department was in disarray. Supplies were getting late to the front lines. Communication was hit and miss. Information was inaccurate that was being passed back and forth. Morale was low. It's a dark time in the history of our country. Division. Division. And Abraham Lincoln's advisors recommended a name from the past to take over for the, to be, serve as a secretary of war. Edwin Stanton. Edwin Stanton would be recommended now, who's Edwin Stanton? Why was this name perhaps jolting for President Lincoln? Is this Edwin Stanton was a political adversary, an enemy perhaps. Alright? Edwin Stanton would call President Lincoln in the past a gorilla, the giraffe, because this is his stature, is tall. He wouldn't say he'd, President Lincoln or Abraham Lincoln had no token of understanding. He, he was. Uh, attack and it was like that back then too okay in politics and so president lincoln had a choice does he do, does he go with the recommendation of his advisors and deep inside he knew that stanton was the best man for the job and what president lincoln did he actively chose to love this man he put his personal differences aside and he appointed him and what he did immediately was this he spent a lot of time with him He spent time talking to him. He uh, showed him honor and praise in public. He extended a graciousness level of trust towards him. Okay, is this what you think? Let's do it. You're signing off on that? I got it. We're with you. Immediately, there was a bond that was being formed as President Lincoln chose to love Edwin Stanton as he knew the nation was on the brink of dissolving and with this trust that he extended to Stanton he commanded a great level of loyalty now Stanton will be loyal to him and through it a friendship was birthed they became friends and as the leadership was unified in the nation this led for the country to be unified as well On April 9th, 1865, Stanton would report to Abraham Lincoln that Robert E. Lee had surrendered. The North had won. The Union was was preserved. And on April 11th, a few days later, President Lincoln will give an address at the White House to the people of America to welcome the southern states back in. To welcome them back in. His uh, sentiments such as, do not, we destroy an enemy when we make him our friend. So his, his value of forgiving and coming together was shown and being bled out to the whole nation. However, only three days later, after April 14th, 1865, on April 14th, 1865, just three days after delivering this address, the joy of victory returned to sorrow as President Lincoln was assassinated, and his body was laid in a coffin. And as Edwin Stanton looked on the coffin of President Lincoln, he said this through tears. There lies the greatest ruler of man the world has ever seen. You see, love unified these men. And love was the appeal to bring the nation back together. Abraham Lincoln and Edwin Stanton's relationship helped preserve the unity of the nation. And unity is what Paul has been talking about. Out of of chapter 12, verse 13 now. Unity in the church, in the local church. Unity is a priority in the local church. But this is very difficult. This is very difficult. The church must fight to maintain unity. And love is a spiritual glue that keeps the church unified. Because there are going to be differences. There are going to be different styles, different emphasis happening that may not fit what you want. But love is a spiritual glue that says, all right, let's stay together. And the church, I like to liken the church as like a spiritual hospital. Amen? Where all of us, me included, all of us are recovering sinners, are we not? And we get to do life together. And whenever you get a room full of Sinners, former sinners, there are going to be offenses that take place. There's going to be sin against one another. There's going to be differences of opinion. Sometimes there's thoughtlessness, whatever. Sometimes we don't dot the I and cross the T culturally and somehow these things could get very offensive for one another. Therefore, it's critical that we understand how we need to respond as a church family. Paul was addressing love, there's a lot of offenses that took place in Corinth, a lot of hurt, a lot of wounds. And Paul is appealing to love to keep the church unified. Because what happens is this. We could learn to coexist with one another and just do life, never coming together. Just coexisting peacefully, but never coming together. And before you know it, years and decades have passed, and we don't know each other. We just learn to tolerate one another. That's not what the Lord calls us to do. The Lord calls us to be unified. Unified. And in an age where our nation, this is perhaps one of the most polarizing times in our nation, and perhaps even in the church. How are we going to respond to this time? And that was a great illustration of our nation's past, where one of the great leaders of our time, uh, Abraham Lincoln, helped unify, galvanize the nation. And it started, guess what? Not with the whole nation, one relationship at a time. Amen? This is what we're going to talk about today. How are we to love those who are difficult to love? All right? This is what we're talking about. So, we're, like I said, we're going to focus in on verse 4 to 7. And Paul poetically details what love looks like. He doesn't necessarily define what love is, but he gives you examples and details. Uh, and he gives us 15 descriptions of what agape love is. Seven in the positive and eight in the negative. In the positive, what I mean is love is. He's going to tell you what it is. And also in the negatives, love is not or love does not. And he's going to detail what love isn't. And as I study this, all these 15 uh, descriptions of love are at, our verbs so agape love christian love christ-like love is active it's not a passive thing it's an active thing it's something that we choose to do it's not about emotions or our feelings we may not feel like doing it either but this is a, a choice a sacrificial love of the world i choose to love you this is what paul is talking about okay so let's get right to it now let's get to the first point here what is the character of love? Agape love is, number one, selfless. Fill in the blank. Selfless. Verse 4 says this. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is patient. This is just talking about long-suffering. This is not being patient with someone that's easy to be patient with. This is being patient when offended. Being patient when those who are having a hard time loving on you, perhaps. This is talking about it's certainly talking about when we have grievances with other people. Colossians 3, 12 to 13 says that we bear with one another, forgiving one another. Ephesians 4 talks about show tolerance for one another because they're difficult people. I mean, Paul from Colossae to the, the church in Ephesus the church in Thessalonica, he talks about this. So let me read out of First Thess- Thessalonians 5, 14. We urge your brethren, admonish the unruly. The unruly, these are hard people to live with. Encourage a faint-hearted, those who are weak in faith. Help the weak, those who are struggling. Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays evil uh with, e- uh, with evil for evil, for always seeking after that which is good for one another. And for all people. See, Paul is talking about, when he says love is patient, he's talking about those that are hard to love. And he says, when he says love is kind, meaning providing something beneficial, extending, moving towards somebody who is hard to love. See, patience and kindness are two sides of the same coin. Heads or tails, right? Same coin, two different sides. Love is, love is patient is our posture towards someone like that, right? Right? All right, love is kind is I'm going to move towards that person now. I'm going to act out. I'm going to do something kind for them, something beneficial for them. Love and patience, patience and kindness are two sides of the same coin. And so agape love is, is selfless. In order to be this way, you're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about another person. How do I love this way? And the Corinthians were self-absorbed, okay? We know this. We've been hearing this almost every week, how this is about them. This is about status. This is about self-elevation, self-promotion. So Paul says something very drastic. Their love is patient, love is kind. And the Corinthians were used to a worldly type of love, which is me, myself, and I take care of myself. This is what they're used to, brothers and sisters. This is kind of the mindset. They brought a lot of worldliness into the local church in Corinth. And right now, Paul, for the next segment here, next point here, he's on to chronicle eight love is nots or does nots. He's going to tell them what love isn't. In effect, I believe what Paul's doing here is this. He's giving a survey of how the Corinthians were treating each other. He was basically acknowledging the hardships that were taking place is basically saying That's not love. That's not Christian love. I, I acknowledge it. Brother so-and-so did this to you. Sister so-and-so talked about you this way. I acknowledge those things have happened. This is not Christian love. So Paul is going to teach us about agape love by what it's not right here. Kind of a negative. So point number two, I'm going to talk about worldly love is self-centered. We need to learn what worldly love is. Worldly love is self-centered. And like I said, Paul's going to give us a survey of these things. So I'm just following. I'm just going to go right down the list. I'm going to go right down the list. If you have your Bibles, that's basically your outline. Verse four. The second part says this. Love is not jealous. The Corinthians were jealous of one another. They would love to pit each other against one another. Just a review. In 1 Corinthians 3, they were into personality cults. I am of Paul, I am of Paul, I am of Peter or Cephas, I am of Christ. Meaning, by who you're associated with, you elevate yourself with one another. And like people are jealous of that. They are envious of one another. It's very self-centered. The next uh, uh, point that Paul makes is this. Love does not brag, it is not arrogant. The Corinthians were self-promoting people. They're like, look what I've done. Look who I'm associated with. Look how much money I have. They're flossing their goods and flossing how much how wealthy they were. And shaming other people. They're bragging. Nobody likes someone who brags. But it takes a self centered person to be all about that. And this is love is not arrogant. The word is physio. I like that word. It means like puffed up, right? You've got a physio ball. They work out. It's puffed up. It's round and big, right? So a physio, someone who's arrogant is, has a higher view of themselves. They have an overly inflated view of themselves. So the Corinthians were this. First Corinthians three talks about how wise somebody was. Look how wise I am. Look how learned I am. I know so much. First Corinthians eight talks about how knowledge puffs up. These are all the things that Paul was doing. I believe it's kind of giving them a review. Then he goes on to say, love does not act unbecomingly. What does that mean? Unbecomingly means rude, inappropriate, shamefully. First Corinthians 11, the Corinthians were having love feasts. They were calling love feasts before communion, the most unifying time in the life of the church. What were they doing at the love feast? They're basically inviting the rich or inviting the rich. They're having an incredible party. They're, 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 they're getting engorged with food, drunk with wine. And okay, now it's time to take the communion. All right, bring in everybody else. They're shaming the, the poor. It became very divisive. They're just flaunting their wealth. Shameful, disgraceful, self-centered, self-centered. Next thing, number five, love does not seek its own. That's a me-first mentality, right? That's selfishness. That's self-centered. 1 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about how the Corinthians were just doing their liberties. I got Christian freedom. I doesn't, it doesn't matter how this affects my brother or sister. I'm going to do whatever I want. Self-centeredness. Sixth negative is love is not provoked. This is talking about outbursts of anger. Do you know people that way? That All of a sudden, they don't get their way, selfish ways. They get fired up, and they, they get angry, whether outwardly or inwardly. Passive-aggressive. We understand this, how this because I didn't hear what I wanted to hear. I don't get to do what I want to do. I am going to be angry, right? That, that's not Christian. That's fleshly, as as Kelly read through Galatians, uh, this fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. That's not of the, that's not of the spirit. How about number seven here? Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. That's an accounting term. That's like record keeping. And, and, and the picture is as a bookkeeper in, in business, you need a good bookkeeper because when it's time to give an account, you need to be able to demonstrate this is how you spent your money. This is how we've been, uh, w- when so we have an accountant for our church to make sure that we, we sh- do things above reproach. This is very important for our church to do this. But in relationships, this is not good because what we, what we what, what they were doing is this in a self-centered way they're keeping they're telling their record they have that bookkeeping and when convenient they'll bring it out at the right time do you understand what I'm saying when you get in those arguments it's like, conveniently here's that do you remember you did this to me two years ago right We understand this And then lastly eight love does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. Finishes off with a positive there. And basically, the Corinthians were laughing at sin. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 5? Where there was a man who was involved with his stepmom. Need I say more? And the Corinthians were okay with it. What is this? What is this? They were actually pardoning it. They they're pardoning unholy living. Love doesn't do that. And then some some commentators was carried this idea that when you do this, you rejoice when other Christians stumble. When you, Do you stumble, I mean, do you rejoice when you hear somebody stumbling in sin? In a weird way, that's perhaps a way for the Corinthians to elevate themselves thinking, oh, I'm more spiritual than that person, right? So self-centeredness, this is what we're talking about. This is what the Corinthians were uh, used to. This is what Paul is working against. Worldly love. And there was a lot of hurts, there's a lot of wounds in this historic church. I have, a, I have a Wednesday morning Bible study at 6.30 in the morning on Zoom, and uh, it's been great. And the topic came up of forgiving one another. And we talked about two different types of people that offend us. At work, perhaps, you've experienced this, no doubt, or at school, right, at the university or at the high schools or schools. You've had non-believers offend you. Perhaps they gossiped about you. Perhaps they've kind of cheated, kind of slandered you to try to elevate themselves for promotion at work. You know how this works. And the topic came up is this. When is it harder? Is it harder or more difficult to deal with offenses done by non-believers or believers? Think about this for a second. If you've been offended or sinned against, is it easier to deal with internally, right? Internally, if it was a non-believer or a believer. So we kind of talked about it and what would you say? We came to the conclusion, or at least I did. I don't know if they agreed with me, but I came to the conclusion that it's much harder with believers. Non-believers... Do not be surprised when a non-believer acts like a non-believer. I I get it. There's some common courtesy. There's some common uh, 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 decency that we like to expect from everybody. But when a non-believer lies, cheats, and steals, what do you expect? Fruit of the flesh. And by the way, non-believers, when they act that way, they're not the enemy. They're the mission field, right? So we understand this is kind of how it is. But with believers, professing believers... You expect a certain level of maturity. You, you expect a certain level of regard. You expect a certain level of respect for the brotherhood and sisterhood. We, we believe that we have the same God, same Lord, same Savior, same Spirit. We believe the same things. It's harder. I, I think it's much harder when, you're, when a believer, a professing believer, sins against you. And that's way harder. That's why in the church, when offenses have happened... It could be that, all right, you tuck it away, but you just keep on steamrolling without ever coming together back as a a unified unit in your relationship. Much harder in the local body. So as I was talking about some of these offenses, now Paul doesn't give an exhaustive list of how not to love. I mean, he just gives us eight things right here. But as I was talking about these things, did anybody come to mind for you right now? Do, do, when, when I th- think about this when I ask you to think about this who has offended you in the church what Christians have offended you does a particular face come to mind even to the point where ah, I don't want to even think about that person does a face come to mind right now perhaps the Lord will bring that to mind right now what does agape love look like in this situation, this is what Paul's addressing in his next verse in chapter 7. What does agape love look like in this situation? Perhaps it's a parent. Perhaps it's your best friend or it you, was your best friend. Perhaps it's a spiritual leader that you looked up to that let, let you down. I don't know. Perhaps you find out somebody in the church has been talking badly about you. How are we to respond, right? This is what Corinth was dealing with. This is very personal. This isn't like, all right, let's forgive each other. It was very deep. The wounds were deep. The scars were still there. The bleeding was real. And so Paul is actually challenging them here coming up in verse 7 how to respond here. So what is the character of love? Point number three, agape love is sacrificial. It's going to cost us. It's going to cost us verse 7. I'm just going to read it. Bear, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, when offended. Now, this is where Paul gives us a progression how to love one another. This is a, this is about dealing with unlovely people. This is very difficult. This is not talk, thinking about your best friend or the one that you affirms you constant. This is our, this is talking about loving those who are very difficult. So let's go through a four-part progression here. When offended, love bears all things. That means you endure, you stand. In that sense, you cover. This word uh, bears carries the meaning of covering. You're putting a cloak over somebody. What does that mean? Proverbs ten twelve says that love covers all transgressions. 1 Peter 4, 8 says love covers a multitude of sins. And you, you, okay, you find, you get wind or you kind of notice something, go, you know what? I'm not going to call this person out. I'm going to keep this private. I want to protect this person from ridicule, harm, or gossip. I'm going to cover this. I'm going to keep this private. I'm going to put a cover over him or her. That's what love does when you're thinking about that person that came to mind. Love bears all things. Step number two. Love believes all things. What does this mean? That means you have trust and confidence. And in in essence, you give this person the benefit of the doubt. What does that mean? That means this, is that, you know what? Surely I I must have caught them at a wrong time. Like perhaps they had an argument with their spouse and I caught them at the wrong time. Surely there must be a misunderstanding. Or certainly, I'm sure there's an explanation. You're thinking the best for this person. You know, this is a brother or sister. You, you treat them the way you want to be treated. It's like, certainly, there's an explanation here, right? Certainly, I, I, and I'm going to find this out. So love believes all things. That I mean, you, that you're thinking the best for this person. And, and before jumping to conclusion, what we do is this. you got to find out the facts. I'm going to seek to understand what happened here. What happened here? And what's difficult is this: when you confirm the facts, you know what? Sure enough, he did this. Sure enough, he he uh, he sinned against me. There's a true problem. What do you? What does Paul say there? Does he stop right there? I right, done. No, there's step number three here. Love hopes all things. Paul is the apostle of hope. I mean, 19 out of 31 times his word, hope is used by him in his letters. I mean, the majority of the time, hope is used by him in his letters. And basically, you're thinking, all right, there's a problem here. But I'm hopeful, right, hope. Christians were hopeful, hopeful that they will be restored. I'm hopeful that our relationship could be reconciled. Because no one goes into a situation looking to reconcile if there's no hope in it. The Bible says love hopes all things. Something good is about to happen. It may take some time, but something good is about to happen. Even where there's no positive effects, I'm gonna continue to pray for him. I'm gonna continue to pray for them. I'm gonna when those thoughts of discouragement come into mind about those people, perhaps those that face jumps into your mind at the weirdest times. I'm gonna pray for them so my mind and my heart doesn't go to that dark place. I'm going to keep praying for them. And then fourthly here, finally, love endures all things. This is a military term, endures all things. This, I share this because I think this helps. A military term, to remain in place. I'm going to stand here in the face of hostility. I'm not going to leave my post. God assigned me to this person providentially, right? Right? God's in control providentially. I'm in this difficult relationship and I'm going to stand my ground. I'm not going to lead the post that God has assigned for me in the church. Love is expensive. We talked about love is sacrificial. Because agape love forgives. And just because you forgive somebody, it's not over yet because... Whenever there's a debt, if you're a banker, you loan out money, you know someone's got to pay. Somebody's got to pay. Same thing, if someone's offended you, someone has to pay. If it's not that person and you forgive them, the one offended needs to forgive. You need to release it. There's still an offense done. That's why love is expensive. It's sacrificial. Agape love is sacrificial. Worldly love takes. Agape love gives up. This is what we're talking about here. This is unnatural. This is absolutely unnatural. Right now you should be thinking, man, I know I don't do this all the time. So like I shared last week, as I confessed last week, there's no way I love like this. There's no way. There's no way I do this all the time. There's no way. In the flesh, I don't want to do this. I'm too competitive, too prideful. I can't give in. Even if I do give in, I can't admit that I gave in. You know, that's just kind of how we work. That's, that's worldly. That's fleshly. We need to fight that. But love is an action as we talked about. It's not just a feeling. It's more than a feeling. Or agape love is just because you don't feel like it. That's not what we're talking about. Really, these are commands by the Lord. Love is. like You need to do this. This is what you're charged to do. It's, agape love, once again, is a sacrificial love of the will. I choose to sacrifice for you. This is what we're doing. And so we, therefore we choose to forgive. We choose to reconcile with others. I mean, I think to myself, I mean, I'm just going to plug my name in just because I'm the one up here, but plug your own name into this lift, onto this love list. Can you say to yourself, Rocky is patient. Rocky is kind. Rocky is never jealous. Rocky never brags and is never arrogant, never acts rudely or unbecomingly. Rocky never seeks his own. Rocky never is provoked to anger. Can you say that? Rocky doesn't take an account or a record keeping of wrong. Rocky bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Can you say that about yourself? I, I I certainly cannot. Not all the time. Not all the time. So how can we love like this? Just like last week. I don't want to leave us in that moment of like, okay, I guess you win. I don't love like this. We like to elevate, okay? You always want to identify an issue and then elevate, okay? We want to elevate. How can we love this way? How can we love this way? Well, let's go to Luke 7 here. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 7. I'm just going to go march down Luke 7. We're going to look to Christ here. We're going to look to Jesus Christ, and and, and we're going to finish up the sermon looking at the face of Christ. Luke 7 verse 36. This is a story here. Just like last week we had a story of Martha. This week we have a story of uh, Jesus is the main character, but we got two co-stars, a Pharisee named Simon and a woman who's just is called a known sinner, okay? This She doesn't have a name here that we don't exactly know who it is. Verse 36, let me just get into the narrative. Now one of the Pharisees, that Simon was requesting him, that's Jesus, to dine with him. Come be my guest. And he entered a Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Jesus will sit there. Whenever you recline at the table, this is going to be a long meal. This is not just a quick grab and go. This is, we're going to do fellowship. We're going to talk to each other. This is a big commitment by the Lord to say, yeah, I'll come over to your house. And there was a woman unnamed in the city. We'll meet her someday in heaven in the city who was a sinner. And she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. You know what she did? She brought an alabaster vial of perfume. When it says she's a sinner, what what are we talking about here? What level? An immoral woman. Perhaps a professional sinner if you know what I mean. And she saved up all her money to buy this very expensive alabaster vial of perfume. So she's coming with all her earthly treasures when she finds out that Christ is at Simon's house. Simon probably who persecuted her, who made her feel cast out, who marginalized her. But I'm coming anyway, she said. Verse 30, and standing behind him, Jesus at his feet, Jesus was reclining, at the table weeping she started weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with a the perfume this lady put down her hair which is unacceptable in that time no respectful woman did that but she did and she's using her hair and her tears and this perfume to wipe down and clean Jesus' feet Look at the haters here. Verse 39. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him, Pharisee who had invited Simon saw this, he said to himself, he thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. That she's a sinner. See, I knew Jesus was a fraud. That's totally, Simon should to figure out, is this, is this Jesus Christ, a legitimate prophet? He thought this to himself, or he said this underneath his breath, that Jesus knows everything, he's omniscient, that means he knows everything. And Jesus answered him, Simon, very gentle with him, I have something to say to you. And he said, and he replied, "Say, teacher, great. I got him now, Simon is thinking. <laughs> I got him. All my Pharisee buddies are going to pat me on the back. I've exposed him. Look how this worked out. God brought this woman in who I've never wanted in my house, but I'm glad she's here right now. I got him. Jesus tells a story. We call it parables. He tells a story to make a point. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. A denarii is a whole day's wages. So somebody owed 500 days worth of work, almost two years worth of work, and the other 50, about two months worth of work. Significant for the 500. Still significant for two months worth of work. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. And then Jesus asked a very slam-dunk, slam-dunk question. So which of them will love him more? Simon must have been rattling because his answer should have been an easy layup question, but he answers, S- "I don't know. I suppose the one who he forgave more." Right? Because is, is Jesus trying to trick me? Is he trying to trap me? Right? He goes, that, "So he kind of softens. That. So, I suppose the one whom he forgave more." And he, Jesus, said to him, "You judge correctly. Bingo! That was easy question. You don't need to be a deep theologian to know that. You just got to be human." Verse 44, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? He applies the parable to this situation in the the dining room. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Custom of the time of the host was to provide water or towel to wipe up their feet before entering into the meal room, the dining room. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. Even the men back then, kiss, kiss on the cheek. That was very customary. It's like giving me a, a, giving a handshake or some knuckles, a little greeting there. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume, perhaps, or life savings. She's pouring onto his feet right there. This is what we're talking about here. How do I forgive? How do I love this way? There's two characters here, right? There's Simon, or co-stars, I would say. Jesus is the main star, but two characters that accompany him. Simon the Pharisee. He's the one that owed 50 denarii. He's the one that is self-righteous. He's moral. He's well-respected in the community. People aren't confronting him about his sin. He's honored. They might call him rabbi even. He goes, you know what, I need some forgiveness, but not that much. I can, I'm managing pretty good here. And then there's a, this woman, what is called the known sinner. She's the one that represents the 500 denarii. A known sinner, slandered, I'm sure, talked about. You don't want to, hey, honey, you, you don't want to grow up like that. You, you don't want to be like them, her. That, that's exactly, you don't want to get too close. You know, people might think we're kind of friends with her obviously ridiculed, obviously a known sinner in public. There's an interesting thing that came to my mind as I was thinking about this, talking about this with our pastors. My mind was drawn back to Tacoma, uh, in Tacoma, up in Washington. And in Tacoma, there's a correctional facility for women. And just because I I got to coach, they let me into the prisons and gave messages. So I got to preach a message and I forget what I preached on but I, I know I talked about Christ and um, and usually at the end I kind of give, take a survey kind of like who wants to be forgiven? Do you want this forgiveness that Jesus Christ has to offer you? Do you believe that the God of the universe died and he went to the cross to pay for your sins? And almost 100% of the response is very positive. They stand up, raise their hands, there's tears in people's eyes. I'm like, wow, wow, I like coming here. But I also think to myself, at church, do we see ourselves as the 500 denarii person Do we see ourselves in dire need of forgiveness for our sins? Many of us are respected, and that's good. Many of us are honored. That's good. Many of us live moral lives. We try to dot the I's and cross the T's. We try to do everything above reproach. That's good. But does that blind us, thinking, yeah, I'm okay. I need Jesus. And I need some forgiveness, but I'm okay. You see, the issue in prison, whether it's the juvenile hall or the men's correctional facility or the women's correctional facility, you don't need to convince these people that they're sinners. Something happened, evidently. Something happened. And so when you preach the gospel, it's like freeing, like, whoa, are you kidding me? My life circumstances today might not change, but in eternity, I'm going to be fine with the maker of the universe How can I get that free deal? I want that now. Sign me up right now. We don't have the narrative of what happened with the Lord and this sinful woman ahead of time. But evidently, something happened. They had an exchange for her to even come there and to show her face in that city and to bring her life savings and to pour it at the feet of Jesus. Verse 47 is the key verse here, Luke 7. Verse 47, for this reason, Jesus says, I say to you, talking to Simon in the presence of the disciples, in the presence of this woman, her sins, which are many. Jesus does not back off of that. He loves her. He calls her out. This is wrong. You will be judged by all these crazy things that's been taking place in your life. He's not dismissive. Love pursues and says, this is the truth. You need to know this her sins are many the good news the gospel had been forgiven for she loved much you could tell that she's been forgiven much because for she loved Jesus Christ deeply she's reckless with her love she poured out all that perfume she could get yelled at she could get thrown out of that house. I don't care, I want to be with my Lord, my Savior, who's transformed my life. Because I realized I could never pay this debt back. But he who was forgiven little loves little. Simon. You need forgiveness. You can't pay this debt back either. You need to realize you're just as a dire situation as this woman. All your righteousness will be filthy rags before me. All your good deeds, all the praise and honor that you receive from man, not going to matter to me. Worthless. Look at verse 48. Then he said to her, Jesus said to her, he affirms her again, your sins have been forgiven. I see you as innocent and pure. You are that pure little child. Before all this nonsense happened in your life, all this hurt and pain happened to your life as a grown woman, I see you pure as a baby, as a little girl, the child. Verse 49, those who were reclining at the table with him, Jesus began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? He's more than a prophet. He's actually forgiving people of their sins. Only God could do that. Not even the prophets could do this. Who is this person? Verse 50, and he said to the woman, your faith is. Your belief, your trust in me, has saved you. Sozo saved you. Go in peace. See, when he says to this woman, "Your your sins are forgiven," this isn't a perfect tense. Past, present, future. This woman will continue to stumble, not in, not willing, not wanting to, but she will because she's still in the flesh, and, and spirit is bad, ra- raging within her. But past present, and future. Your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. My question, brothers and sisters, have you put your trust in Christ as the one who owes 500 denarii? Do you realize how much we've been forgiven? Right? Are you at peace right now? Sitting here right now, are you at peace? Can you go, as Jesus said to this woman, go. In peace, are you? do you have the shalom in you? Or it's all good. Although life isn't perfect, it's still all good. Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And there's an indication here. There's an indicator if this has happened. All right, I'm just going to give this fruit test to you guys. This is important. I need to test myself too. The fruit test is this. The fruit meaning if genuine salvation has taken place in you. This is the fruit is how you're willing to forgive others may indicate the quality of your belief in the Lord. How you're willing, not that you want to, not that go, yes, I can't wait to forgive somebody. It's like, okay, I'll do it. How you're willing to forgive somebody, that, that person, that face that comes into your mind's eye when I was preaching may indicate the quality of your belief. Are you the 500 denarii? forgiven person or the 50 denarii person Thomas Watson he's a Puritan preacher from the 1600s has this quote we need not climb into heaven to see whether our sins are forgiven we need not climb into heaven to see whether our sins are forgiven he goes on to say let us look into our hearts hearts and see if we can forgive others if we can, comma, we need not doubt. But God has forgiven us. Our ability to forgive other people is a massive fruit to show us that, oh, I actually believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, that he forgave me a much. Don't we all want to know this? The Lord was making a point with Simon the Pharisee. Who knows what happened to him? But this is the issue here. Although none of us Could say with full conviction out of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, you plug your name and I'm like this all the time. Like, I am patient all the time. I'm loving all the time. And really, that's not the right mind because the Corinthians were looking inwardly. They're looking at themselves. They're self-centered. What we're called to do is get our eyes upon Christ. And instead of our own names, we need to meditate on this. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is never jealous. Jesus never brags, is never He's humble. Jesus does not act rudely. He's always gracious. Jesus does not seek His own. Obviously, He went to the cross. Jesus is slow to anger. Jesus doesn't take into account a wrong suffered as far as east from the West. right? He separate us from our sins. Jesus never rejoices in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. He covers us. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. He gave us certain hope. Jesus endures all things. He certainly did on the cross. So instead of looking to ourselves, like, yes, I want to become more loving, and that's a good desire, but really, let's look to the Lord. Let's look to the Lord together and see him more. Recognizing how much love Christ showed us transforms us, knowing how much we've been forgiven, elevates our love from one level to another for him and for one another. It's all about grace, so in this last song, we're going to finish up with two songs and this we like to call the song the song following the sermon the response song oftentimes. Me and the worship leader, we like to make sure these songs are very close to the sermon. So that when we sing it, we're preaching and teaching and admonishing one another. So we can hear one another. And also we're allowing what's been preached to crystallize into our hearts through song. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Singing with thankfulness to God in our hearts, right? This last song, this next song grace that's greater than our sins. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to preach your word. What an amazing part of scripture, Lord, out of 1 Corinthians 13. Thank you, Jesus, for being patient and kind, humble, slow to anger to us, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you keep no records of our wrongs. Thank you, Jesus, that you bear all things, you believe all things. Thank you, Jesus, that you hope all things. Thank you, Jesus, that you endured all things on the cross for us. Lord Jesus, help us to know how much we've been forgiven so that our love for you will elevate from one level to another. We want to love like you, Lord. I know we don't, but help us to love like you, Lord Jesus. And Lord, I pray your spirit will move us to sing with all our hearts, Lord worship to you lord the great grace that you have shown us and continue to show us and father i pray we will also think of one another how we uphold each other as we sing to sing to you lord we could preach we could teach and admonish one another through psalms hymns and spiritual songs so lord i pray you would embed your word more deeper more firmly you would crystallize your words into our hearts as we sing and preach to one another thank you lord you awesome, God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.